perfect is for the gods. The rest of us, we have things go wrong occasionally. In California, you're allowed to say, I'm sorry. As soon as you've been named, it's just a big pain in the ass. We're handing out back to my candy to everybody. Boys and girls, children <laughs> of all ages, let's get it going. Risk Management Monthly for March of uh, 2014. And yes. you've got a special guest. This is just like the Mickey Mouse Club. Today, we brought in a special guest. Would you like to introduce our guest for us? Yeah, we got Mike Ritter on the line. Mike is uh, our ashram correspondent. We pay all expenses for him to go to ashram every year and report on ashram. What does that mean? Uh, American Society of Hospital Risk uh, something or other? American uh, Society of Healthcare Risk Managers. And Mike is the uh, director at Mission. Now, it used to be called Community Hospital, but they've really expanded. Now, the Mission Regional Hospital down in Orange County in the more Tony end of uh, Orange County. So Mike is going to report on that. There's a bunch of interesting stuff that came out of that meeting. He's got some uh, good cases for us. And Greg, you have cases that have been accumulating now for months and months and months. We have some letters as well. In fact, I just got one this morning. So let's get into it. Mike, what happened there at this meeting? So ASHRAM is American Society for Healthcare Risk Managers. So all the hospital risk managers that we interface with all get together for their annual conference every year. And so this was in Austin, Texas this last year. And there's a series of lectures that I love to attend that provides all kinds of information on what's going on in the medical malpractice world and risk management. The, one of my favorite ones is put on by AON, which is a company that does a lot of actuarial work, figuring out how much insurance should be. And so they break down all of the medical malpractice claims that are reported through them, which is about 28% of all the hospitals in the United States representing 177,000 hospital beds. So it's a really good sampling to give us an idea of what's going on out there. In 2013, they estimated that it was uh, $2,870 for every hospital bed that's occupied for a year that's going to need to be paid out for legal costs for both your indemnity and your legal fees. And that's up about $70 from 2012. They attributed this increase mainly to increasing the legal costs and the indemnity payments are actually have been stable for several years now. Let's make sure that our, our listeners understand one thing, and that is indemnity is what you pay to the person who's injured. Legal costs are everything else. And having run two insurance companies, about half of it is legal cost. The other half is indemnity. Correct. So the first thing that I thought was very interesting when they broke all this up is that only about 38% of all claims actually end up making an indemnity payment. In other words, money that goes to the patient, which means that 62% of all the claims, there is no payment at all. And that's been stable for several years. The average claim in the United States in 2013 was $172,000. That's up several thousand dollars, but not statistically significant. Some emerging trends in medical malpractice, and some of these apply to emergency medicine now. One of them are patient safety initiatives and what are considered the never events. So never events are things like getting a urinary tract infection after a Foley catheter is placed. These are very these kind of claims are very difficult to defend because they're never supposed to occur. And so when it does happen, it makes it challenging. One of the new never events that was added to the list in October of 2013 was pneumothorax after central line placement. Mm. And one of the drivers of that is now that ultrasound is being used to assist physicians when we put on our central lines. Hold the phone. 
You know, there's several good studies out that say that using the ultrasound to put in the uh, central line is not necessarily any better than not using the ultrasound. And there's a certain number of pneumothoraces with that as well. So whenever they use the term never, there's nothing never in medicine. Maybe you never get pregnant in your outer ear or something like that. But the fact that they use the term never doesn't mean it's going to be never. The only thing that never translates to is they're never going to pay you for the consequences, the complication through the insurance company and Medicare, et cetera. Right. But you're correct. These things do happen, and we're never going to eliminate all of them. But it just makes it difficult to defend the case when it, the word never appears before this complication. Dr. Henry, I'd like to um, suggest that my read of the literature says if you want to put this thing in and it's not like a super commando kind of thing that it is clearly in the patient's best interest and maybe yours now to uh, have somebody come and help you with ultrasound now i know that you have no idea what an ultrasound machine is it's that big box that they roll around so this is a generational kind of thing where all of the younger doctors now going through these residencies do it. And so it, I think the standard of care is changing somewhat. And I agree that the term never is, is a bad term because it just falls right into the lawyer's bailiwick when it's said, oh, this is never event. You know, people fall in the hospital. They still fall in the hospital and break their hip. And, and you know, that's, that's a never event kind of thing. But you can't strap down elderly, demented patients all the time. And there's going to be some occasional events we should call them occasional events not a never event yeah exactly because the last thing uh, if, if you take out enough appendices like a hundred thousand of them there is going to be one bad outcome but you know what no matter what we do we're probably got not going to shrink the number before one in below one in a hundred thousand and we have to get over that it will never be perfect you know, that perfect is for the gods. The rest of us, we have things go wrong occasionally. You know, another interesting uh, topic that was uh, discussed quite a bit is the actuarial rates and information used to set what our policies are going to cost us for our malpractice insurance. And there's several things that are really kind of throwing a monkey wrench into the actuarial data. The biggest one is, is that the number of physicians that are becoming employed by hospitals is changing who physicians use for their malpractice insurance. So a lot of physicians, when they become employed, now fall under the hospital's malpractice coverage, which is a different company or self-insurance that's different from the commercial insurers that insure physicians. And what that's done is the commercial insurance industry is scrambling to maintain their business. So there's a lot of M&A activity, merger and acquisition, where these companies are buying each other out and becoming larger. And as a result, in order to keep the existing physicians that are left, they are keeping the rates down. And so the actuarial guy from AON, his feeling was is that the rates have been kept artificially low, that the stock market's been good for a few years, which has helped the insurance companies. But when all the dust settles and all the mergers are done, we may see some rate increases on commercial malpractice insurance. The other thing that makes it difficult in terms of trying to figure out setting rates you know, typically the rates are set based on claims history and what's reported. But when you 
work for a hospital and you do a joint settlement on a case or there's a verdict and then it, there has to be apportionment, the physicians always want the numbers to be as low as possible for them because of the consequences of medical board investigations and being reported to the data bank, et cetera. What that does is it screws up the actuarial data because it looks like physicians are paying much less for the claims than they have in the past. But when you put the hospital component and the physician component together, the overall numbers are stable. So it looks like hospitals are worse and doctors are better. The claim of the insurance company is that if we go with a combined action, doctor covered under the hospital, doctors never get the same kind of individual protection and they should still theoretically be reported to the data bank. So there are some downsides to this sort of joint defense, although theoretically the allocated loss adjustment should be less. The, the actual payments may be skewed, as you pointed out. Right. And, they, and the, the general consensus was is that when you have a joint defense with you and the hospital being on the same team, which is different than if you work at a hospital and you have different insurance companies because you may wind up pointing the finger at each other, is that the overall payments that are going to be going out will be less because you can offer a larger number as a unified defense. But it'd be less than if each of you paid separately. That's always said. I've asked them many times. Show me the study that says that that's true. And they right. always say, well, it seems, it seems logical. Well, th that's not science. No, you're right. You're right. And that's a really good point. In terms of hospital losses, the, the three areas that, that are the loss leaders or uh, responsible for the most payments going out are OB for deliveries and bad babies, the emergency department, and surgery. And if you break it down per patient visit or per delivery, for OB, it's $186 is going to be paid out for every delivery uh, that occurs in the United States. And that's up $6 from 2012. The emergency department, I thought was interesting, which is $6.09. And this is on the hospital side. For every visit to the emergency department, you've got to set that aside. And then for surgery in the operating room in the hospital, it's $120 per operation needs to be set aside. That'll be paid out for your legal and your indemnity expenses. When you break this up in terms of the overall big picture, for every million dollars in hospital revenue, about $6,000 of that will go towards your med-mal expenses, your indemnity and your legal expense. And since the average hospital has a 3% margin, that means that the hospital's making 30 grand for every million dollars in revenue. So medical malpractice is consuming 20% of hospital profits. And that's money that can be used to help our patients get better treatments, to buy new equipment. It goes on and on and on. But I'm glad you... Uh have also brought back with you, I noticed on your list, you have what it is per state, because the United States is absolutely goes from the most bizarre numbers in the world, Florida, New York, Illinois, to places like uh, South Dakota and Indiana, where you literally have to leave the body in the hallway with a knife in it. To, to get charged with malpractice. Is, is, yeah. that, is that pretty pretty honest? It's a huge variation. So, you know, when you look at the, the med mal costs per occupied bed equivalent, you know, like we talked about before, in Indiana, which is the lowest, is 
$1,610 to the highest in Florida, which is $7,260. You know, that's almost a five-fold increase in the in the difference between what it's costing for your med mal rates, which is crazy. United States average is $2,870. So for every hospital bed that's occupied for a year, you're going to spend $2,870. And this is just on the hospital side. This is not including the physician component of it. What this says is that the, the hospitals in Indiana are five times as smart as the hospitals in Florida. I'm not sure that's actually the case. The other thing is when you think about Florida, Florida has been described as God's waiting room. You know, you're just waiting to die. There's going to be something that is going to be litigatable on old people brought into the hospital. You know, whether it's the actual concentration of plaintiff's attorneys or the difference in the age of who's showing up at the hospital. These differences are so crazy, they make almost no sense. Well, you know, one of the things I think we could consider doing is, I think you could probably saw off um, that thing called Florida and just let it float out there towards Cuba, because the fact (laughs) of the matter is, is that not only are they spending a lot of money on malpractice issues there. They're also spending a lot on Medicare. I did a talk yesterday at Cedars-Sinai, the Hospital of the Stars here. It was about variation, one of my favorite themes. The idea here is that there are some substantial uh, differences that are going on. And Medicare is a great example. In Minneapolis, the annual cost for a Medicare patient in Minneapolis is about $6,000. In Florida, in Miami particularly, it is twice that, $13,000. And one of the reasons is there are just way too many doctors down in Florida and doctors create their own visit numbers. And uh, it's like the more doctors you have, you think the price would go down. No, it doesn't. So Florida is a a cesspool of um, medical excess. Wait a second. (laughs) Wait, Ricky, before we start picking on the other state that ships out oranges, uh, and and that's what you're mad about, that Florida se- sends out oranges as well. By the way, you know what they do with the rotten oranges in Florida? They stamp them with California and, <laughs> and ship them out. But the problem is, in Southern California, there's a neurologist on every corner. There's there's a there's an interventional cardiologist in uh, in in uh, Hollywood on on every street corner. Yeah, I got that. But I'm looking at the chart here. The uh, cost in California, according to Mike's chart. $2,670. That is below the average, national average, by 200 bucks. Right. And that's a third of what is being uh, paid out in uh, Florida. The other thing is, is that, interestingly enough, the average number of prescriptions for a Medicare patient in, in Miami is 69 per year. In the uh, hinterlands, in the, uh, in the Ohio's and the, uh, and the Dakotas, it's in the 30s. So uh, there's all kinds of markers of um, excessiveness because obviously these numbers are, uh, you know, uh, adjusted because you can't just say that people are, are, you have to have similar sicknesses to compare this. But the bottom line is there is substantial variation in this country and malpractice is just one example. Well, I think in the Dakotas, though, when you ask an old person, how are you? Their answer is usually something like, good enough. Uh, where it's, it's, either, it's, it's either that or they say, I'm getting old and I'm moving to Florida. And I'm moving to Florida, <laughs> exactly. In Florida, if you ask that question, you better be prepared for an hour or two dissertation on what's gone wrong. I mean, it, it's painful. All right.
let's get on to mid-level providers and claims against here. You know, just real quickly, when you're talking about excessive numbers of physicians in South Orange County, we have way too many plastic surgeons. So our joke is, is the way you find a plastic surgeon is just yell, waiter. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there was another really good lecture that provided a lot of data on mid-level provider claims experience for both nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Ray Johnson, who's one of my partners in Mission that you both know, we kind of joked about the future of emergency medicine 100 years from now. Your emergency department's going to have 200 beds with a big control tower in the center where the physician is. One doctor. One doctor and 50 mid-levels, and you're just going to have a set of binoculars watching everybody and everything that's going on. And the experience with mid-levels is starting to uh, mirror the experience of physicians in terms of claims as they get into the hospital and start working in areas that have traditionally only been covered by physicians cardiothoracic surgery, the emergency department, et cetera. The average successful claim against mid-levels is $290,000. So 226 of that is indemnity payments to the patient. The emergency department claims experience is less than average. The um, highest are, interestingly, pediatrics, which includes a pediatric ICU and the NICU. So those are your bad baby cases. The other area that was really interesting to me was home health. And that has to do with the fact that a lot of mid-levels are running nursing homes and seeing all the patients that are there. And then urgent cares had huge exposure as well. And I suspect that that urgent care large number, which is 446,000, almost double what it is for the emergency department, is because there's more mid-levels and urgent cares. But as we see more of them in the hospital... Um, they're going to have the same kinds of issues that physicians have with chest pain, et cetera. Well, you know, we, as we're now watching it, those of us who are getting cases and doing expert reviews, I think it's gone up maybe six or seven times what it was 10 years ago. But that's, that just mirrors the fact that the utilization of advanced practice providers, which I think is now the politically correct term, has gone up that much. I I, you know, the joke you told uh, you and Ray J talk about uh, the conning tower and, and the 100, uh, 200 beds. Right. I don't think that's a joke. And I think that it is a absolute uh, focus for ASAP to start talking about what are the ideal staffing uh, models. And let's run a few of them to see what really gives good care. Because I, I, I see this all the time where they're not intervening on those cases which, are, which really do require some doctor intervention. And I think this is not going to change. I think the insurance model here is sending us practitioners a message. Hey, maybe you need to look at your act a little bit and decide what the concept of supervision really is. Or if we've decided we don't have to do it, then let's just be honest about that. And uh, we can close down half the residencies. Hey, listen, have you guys considered a course for mid-levels that might help them avoid malpractice because of their learning, charting, and risk management issues and all kinds of intensive kinds of things, like a course that might be called Emergency Medicine Boot Camp? Uh, are you familiar with that, the concept, Dr. Henry? Rick, <laughs> what an idea. You're, you're brilliant. I, I don't know what I can say other than... Can we can we market this? Can we do this? 
Well, this is just a chance for a plug. You know, we got one coming up in July uh, back in Las Vegas. And I think that we've had like mm, 3,200 people have gone to that little sucker, uh, not including the people have taken on the Internet as a reflection of the passion that these uh, folks have for learning emergency medicine, because so much of it has been on the job training. And, you know, that has its limits. And so the idea of formalizing this education, I'm sure every group tries to address you know, their fundamental training is in primary care. And so there is this steering around to learn emergency medicine and how can you do that most safely, most efficiently? Because you and I, Greg, have seen these issues where a physician seemed to be kind of reluctant to put in the level of supervision that is required in these cases. And so things fall through the cracks. And two of our physician assistants went to your course last year, Rick, and they loved it. There you and, go. Uh, we've got more of them coming back this year. So it was really good. I asked them to make some bullet points to share with everybody. And one of the guys had over a hundred of them on a, you know, several sheets of paper. So um, they're good. And this is an unsolicited recommendation. Now, have yeah. we talked before about this, Mike? No. Have no, no. Yeah, there you go. There you Rick, go. I've looked at this guy's hundred points and one of them was, you know, don't eat peas with a knife and stuff like <laughs> that. So, so whether it directly influences what he learned from you and I and uh, who else? You know, the other crazies there, Billy Mallon and Diane Birnbaumer. I'm not sure. But anyway, we're, we're happy to have all of you come and try and avoid lawsuits. And the first thing I have to teach all uh, PAs and NPs is the only way you win this game is not to play. As soon as you've been named, it's just a big pain in the ass. Absolutely. Now we're getting down to the ED specific claim data chart here, Mike. How we doing? We're good. The overall numbers are decreasing. This was all the completed data from 2004 to 2008. As you know, the courts are overwhelmed around the United States, and with the economic downturn, a lot of them have really cut back. In Los Angeles County right now, they have cut so many courtrooms that there are judges that have over 5,000 cases on their docket that they have to try and manage. Compared to before the cuts, they might have 500. And, and 4,000 so, of those cases are Lindsay Lowen's. So, I mean, uh, you, you know. No, there's, it, all kinds of, there's all kinds of crazy stuff, but as a result, yeah. the time to adjudicate these claims and get them wrapped up can be years and years and uh, but the overall numbers are down what was interesting to me when you looked at the specific claims data is that academic medical centers were almost double those of community hospitals and you know my sort of thought was I always thought of academic institutions as being the premier places that have the smartest and brightest people there but as was pointed out in the talk the problem with academic medical centers is they get referred all the really complex cases that nobody else wants to touch with a 10-foot pole. And those cases are not going to do as well because they are more complicated. You always hear that as their excuse for that's why our cardiology outcomes are not as good because we always get the cases that nobody else wants. But I'm not quite sure that that extrapolates to the emergency department, you know, that they have the harder cases. They, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, that's a stretch. Honestly. There's there's four reasons. There's four reasons they have more cases. Number one, I think they probably do get more train wrecks, which are going to fall apart. I, I don't disagree with that. Number two, everything takes more time. It's slower. You got to have a first year resident see it before a third year resident comes down who then contacts a fifth year who then ta talks to the attending. It goes on forever. There is no plan program to make the patient happy. 
Uh, and lawsuits are still a reflection of not what goes wrong in the country, but what goes wrong that made a whole lot of people unhappy. So they start legal activity. And the last one is, in general, the academic centers are bigger. And bigger itself means more complex and more places to fall between the cracks. If you're in a rural 15-bed emergency department, you can see everybody. It's actually harder to lose people in small places. But I think all of those factor into why academic centers have a little, uh, a little higher uh, suit rate. No, I think those are all excellent points. When you look at the age distribution of the lawsuits, 51% of all the claims are in people that are the ages 31 to 60. And um, as they as patients get older, those numbers drop off. And part of it is that attorneys are more reluctant to take on cases for elderly because their life expectancy is short and their dollar losses are not going to be as big and they're already retired and there's not lost income, et cetera. In terms of diagnostic failures, cardiac events are still number one in terms of our dollar payouts for both academic and community hospitals. One of the attorneys that was there, there was, there was a team of people presenting, but one of the attorneys that was there had a great quote, and he said, if I worked in a hospital in the emergency department, I would admit every patient with chest pain. I would never send any home. He said, we see chest pain cases over and over and over again. And although that's you know a comical exaggeration of the way we practice, it just shows that the perception that attorneys have that we do a terrible job at trying to figure out what's wrong with people that are having chest pain. The other thing that I thought was very interesting that they brought out, and that, this had to do with Bactrim-related drug interactions and lawsuits. Bactrim has several big drug interactions. Because of the huge increase in the number of MRSA cases that we see, we're handing out Bactrim like candy to everybody. And Bactrim interacts with Coumadin and interacts with anticonvulsants. So... When someone's on Coumadin and you put them on Bactrim, their INR goes up. And then if they do have a bleed, it's going to be much worse, whether it's a head bleed or a GI bleed, et cetera. And then with anticonvulsants, when you have Bactrim with, for example, Tegretol or Dilantin, your anticonvulsant levels go down, you become subtherapeutic, and you have a seizure. And one of the cases they presented was patient has MRSA, gets put on Bactrim, is on Tegretol. He would already clear to drive because he hadn't had seizures for years then has a seizure and is in a car accident. And when they take him to the trauma center, his uh, Tegretol level was subtherapeutic and had been stable for many years. And so there was litigation brought to say that the the patient were not put on Bactrim, the level wouldn't have dropped, they wouldn't have had a seizure and wouldn't have had a car accident where they killed someone. The other interaction which emergency docs have to think about is there are lots of drugs that interfere with birth control pills. Maybe you ought to ask that question or at least look and see as you're giving out antibiotics and certain other uh, medications, what interferes with birth control pills and suggest this could be a problem and that other forms of protection might be needed. It's usually not a big lawsuit problem, but it doesn't make the patients happy when somebody else is now calling a mommy. You know, so, Greg, uh, we, uh, think about that. We did a, a lecture in the EMA course. Oh, speaking of EMA courses, <laughs> no, Rick, you know, I, Rick, I'm not letting you take another cheap shot at advertising. Okay. Hey, listen, you're headed to Maui in a day or two, aren't you? Yes, yeah, tomorrow morning I fly to Maui and we will uh we will be drinking little frilly umbrella drinks and sitting there watching the whales play. Well, by the time that this comes out, all of the, these courses will be over, but we have a uh, veil coming up uh, 
in a week. This is a wonderful opportunity to uh, get some nice CME and in some nice places. And the reason I bring it up is because we had a, a lecture a couple of years ago in the course that talked about specifically this idea that it was believed, at least by some, that broad-spectrum antibiotics made birth control pills less effective. And we researched that as part of this talk. And the, what I concluded was, and I, I'm not alone, that rifampin is the drug that is most likely to do this and that the idea of having people who are taking broad-spectrum antibiotics otherwise to tell them to use barrier contraception is probably, well, I wouldn't say probably, it, it does not need to be done. And it's basically a pain in the butt for the women involved. So I think that that... Is uh, it's reflecting the fact that you're old, you know? Yes. Okay. It, it, it could be. And, you know, and if I could go step one ba uh, back, we got a letter from uh, our friend Amal. This EKG thing still keep on coming up, and and cardiac events, despite the fact that I thought we did admit every soul who came in with chest pain. <laughs> he uh, he wanted to make a comment about this idea of non-specific ST changes, which is where people get into trouble on this stuff. People should understand, I'm going to read from this, that uh, EKG machines in general are programmed to read any ST change that is less than one millimeter as nonspecific. In other words, a person can be functionally having an ST segment elevation MI, but if the magnitude of ST elevation is only 0.9 rather than a full one millimeter, the computer will say nonspecific. Same for ST changes uh, that are depressions. It will call depressions that are less than a millimeter non-specific rather than ischemic. And so he's talking about cases where, in fact, they did have a myocardial infarction and the doctors really were not um, careful enough to be aware of this phenomenon. It says, in some of the cases I've seen, emergency physicians get burned on the EKGs because they show clear ST elevation or depression of a half a millimeter and a few contiguous leads. And the computer calls it non-specific when we reviewed closely it becomes very obvious. The most recent example I had was a patient who had just a hair less than a full millimeter of ST depression in V2, 3, V4, and the computer and the doc called it nonspecific. People should just be very careful to not equate nonspecific with no ischemia. People should understand that nonspecific has a shady definition, plus I think EKG machines are programmed by plaintiff's attorneys. <laughs> Identify who sent that letter again, Rick. Amo, Matu. Yeah, yeah. Th this is this is the big guy who's this is giving Dr. all the talks. This is Doctor Cardiology, a good friend of ours, and he's right. I I can't tell you the number of times I've seen the finding non-specific STT wave changes. That one phrase has has probably knocked off more emergency docs than any uh, one cardiology phrase in the country. He notes that, of course, as you both pointed out, the HPI must trump everything, no matter what the EKG shows. But many of these patients have atypical histories, and those are sometimes defensible. But suddenly, when you see, you see these pseudo-nonspecific EKG changes with ST depression or elevation and contiguous leads, it then becomes very, very difficult to defend. And we have some papers from the past that basically said ER doctors are not particularly good at reading these things, and in retrospect, when these lawsuits go down, it's like um, it doesn't go well when you start analyzing the interpretation of these EKGs. Yeah, I, most people would say you listen to the history, you look at the patient, kind of put the whole thing together, 
and then you t- and you've pretty much made a decision one direction you're going. You then look at the piece of paper, and you know you may be tempted to immediately call the cardiologist, but you've pretty much got a direction before you look at the piece of paper, because a non-specific change is just that. It ain't normal. The other big group with chest pain that continue to burn an emergency physician are middle-aged women that are smokers. And as we try and tell all of our physicians and our uh, advanced practice uh, practitioners, the middle-aged cougar will bite you every time. And if they're, so if you have a middle-aged woman that's a smoker, women always have atypical symptoms. They don't always present with the crushing chest pain and diaphoresis, et cetera. And so if they're a smoker, you want to make sure that you get them worked up properly when they come in with atypical symptoms because a lot of them will have coronary disease. And there are a lot of cougars down in Orange County, especially down in your neck of the woods. And listen, the other thing is the number two was CVA. And so did they kind of drill down into that? Is that all of these TPA cases? Yes. The failure to administer TPA continues to be a a giant headache for emergency physicians. They talked a little bit about patients that have waxing and waning symptoms. So, you know, we've traditionally thought of TIAs as an event that happens and goes away and you're fine. But if you actually take these TIA patients and do an MRI on them after the fact, many of them have actually had a very small stroke. Right. But it's not big enough to leave them with a big deficit. But a lot of these waxing and waning symptoms, they get bad and then they get better and they get bad. There's some sort of a thrombus that's partially occluding the vessel in there. And then a lot of these patients wind up... They get admitted, and then two days later, it's a devastating stroke, and then it becomes a big problem for the emergency physician. If you look at Johnson's study, and Johnson uh, was part uh, of Northern California study that looked at people who came in with a TIA and then went on to ask what happens to them in the next 10 days, the next two weeks. You know, 5% of them stroked out in the next in the next 48 hours and 10% of them had a stroke within the next 30 days. I mean it's a it's a serious problem. Unfortunately, we just don't know what to do about it a lot of times. Correct. And and you know the you want to try and identify the underlying cause. Do they have a carotid stenosis or they have an AFib or an arrhythmia? Do they have a congenital heart problem or a valve problem? There's a lot of things to think about and just saying that it's a TIA and sending them home without a big workup, you can get into trouble. So next, I'd like to cover some of the major uh, legal cases that happened in 2013 where there were decisions. The first one had to do with apologies to patients, and this is Ronan versus Sanford, S-A-N-F-O-R-D. And this was a situation where there was a problem and a delay in diagnosis, and the family, when they met with the hospital risk managers, had a tape recorder in their pocket, and the risk manager said, Dr. Ruby really blew it, and this is what happens when people don't do their jobs. Well, they used that tape recording as part of their litigation when they sued for medical malpractice. Now, the Supreme Court in South Dakota ultimately said that this fell under the apology immunity and that it was upheld and the case was dismissed. But what I got out of this from their attorneys was the safest words to use when you have to do an apology about something is, I'm sorry this happened. That phrase is not an admission of guilt. What you don't want to do is to say, Dr. Jones really blew it, and uh, you know this is what happened when people don't do their jobs. The Ronan v. Sanford case is a very interesting case for two reasons. It took place in South Dakota, which never has malpractice cases. I mean, they're, the, they're unbelievably low. Right. And, and, and number two, 
if you actually look at the way this went down, this ought to be some uh, some warning to all of us. When they've got a tape recorder there, it's like when they're taking pictures in the emergency department. It's when they're making a separate record that you don't have control of. Be careful because uh, that record can go anywhere these days. And I think you do need to be afraid of what's done with it. I thought there was a California case in which there was an apology in association with the acknowledgement of fault. And in California, you're allowed to say, I'm sorry but you're not allowed to say, I'm sorry, uh, I screwed up and took the wrong leg off. And, and so there are many states where they separate these into two components, and California is one of them. There are other states which are uh, a little bit more lenient, but if you don't know the apology law in your state, you could get into trouble as, and I don't, it would be interesting if we had the specific reference to the California case, but uh, we don't. The uh, next case was a case that was uh, MedPro versus Duma, and MedPro is a big med malpractice insurer. So Dr. Duma was a obstetrician who was intoxicated and uh, delivered a baby, and there was a bad outcome and a bad baby claim. The med mal insurer, which is MedPro, defended the case, but they lost. The insurer refused to pay the judgment. Dr. Duma filed a lawsuit against MedPro, and the courts, including the trial court and the subsequent appeal, <laughs> ruled that the insurance exclusion for intoxication on the job was valid, and then Dr. Duma was responsible for the entire judgment. Mm. But in all fairness, MedPro defended that case under what they call rights of reservation. They said right up front, we will provide insurance coverage for the attorney. But because you were intoxicated, we have no obligation to provide the indemnity payment. And, and so this, uh, r under rights of reservation, should be understood by physicians. Because you're getting defended doesn't mean they're going to supply the money to cover you. And, and that, that has happened in, a, in multiple other cases, uh, not just related to intoxication. And so we, we should we should kind of keep these things in mind uh, because you got an attorney doesn't mean you got coverage. That's a, that's a really good point, Greg. The uh, next one was uh, McKee versus Lorian. And Dr. McKee was a physician that had some real negative postings about the care of one of his patients. And he was uh, successful in bringing uh, a lawsuit for defamation against his character. <laughs> and uh, the trial courts and the appeals courts upheld the judgment. And these defamation suits filed by physicians uh, is a new emer emerging area of law in the United States. With all of the – with Yelp and all the social media sites where you can post anything about anybody, people have to be careful what they put down because it, it can be construed as defamation and uh, physicians are getting wise to this. But highly opinionated stuff is not the same as defamation. If you say, you know, Dr. Smith was, uh, was rude to me, he was this, he was that, that's their opinion. Uh, the reason this one went forward is because they wandered into other stuff, saying that here's the standard, this should have been done, that should have been done. That's why he won this case. Because, you know, if you could look up any of us now, and you've got people who've said, well, they hurried me out, they didn't give me a script for pain, stuff like that, you know what? You can't sue for that sort of thing. That, that You can't countersue on that. It's got to be an actual attack, some falsehood on what the standard of care should have been. The next case was Romaine versus St. Joseph's, and this was in Michigan. You may know about this case, Greg. Yes, we do. 
And it was interesting in the sense that, so a guy comes to the ER and he's got a hand laceration, gets tired of waiting in the waiting room and goes home. Then his son brings him back for a second visit and he's got a towel that's wrapped around his hand with a bunch of blood on it. He's brought back to a room and treated appropriately. They then, after the fact, reported the hospital for an Imtala violation. When the investigation occurred, they ultimately took the action plan provided by the hospital and said there was no Imtala violation. Mr. Romain then filed a suit in federal court for an Imtala cause. He named both the hospitals and he named the physician. The physician was dismissed as Imtala-related suits can only be filed against hospitals. The hospital was dismissed because the trial court uh, ruled that because an Imtala citation was never issued for the hospital against the hospital for this alleged violation. And then the last case is another Imtala-related case that I thought was very interesting because it had to do with cross-indemnification. Cross-indemnification for everybody that's out there is where you have in your contract with the hospital that if the case goes south and they feel that the physician's responsible and the hospital has to pay money, they can come after the physicians to, to satisfy that debt that they had to pay off on the judgment. That is a big mess because, as you guys have pointed out in the past, we don't have insurance that covers that, and it comes out of our pockets. So in this particular case, it was Cisneros versus Metro Nashville. Uh, Mr. Cisneros came to the emergency department. He had some sort of an eye injury that was missed. He sued the hospital and federal court under Imtala for failure to provide a proper medical screening examination. The hospital settled the case and then went after the physician group for reimbursement as they had a cross-indemnification clause in their contract. The physicians didn't want to pay and went to litigation. The courts dismissed the claim because Imtala-related events, you cannot sue physicians and therefore the physicians should not be responsible for any of the settlement money because they would have never had to pay anything in the first place. Yeah, the uh, the problem with the Cisneros case was the way the, the uh, cross-indemnification was written. And if they'd, ri- if they'd written it up such that if the hospital had written it, such that any losses sustained by the hospital, whether related to a specific claim or not, they could have gotten away with that, but the problem was it, it wasn't a modified form of cross-indemnification. And so I, I think the court was right in this case, but uh, the hospital, quite frankly, should have had a better attorney writing up how these funds were going to be passed. The other thing is if you have a group which has a contract with a hospital, do you think the hospital's got some leverage in whether you kick into any of these claims? Absolutely they do. If a group is making uh, a million bucks a year off a hospital, the hospital turns around and says, we want the cash, uh, I bet they come up with the cash. So it's, it's a much more complex situation than, than the way it's laid out. Then the last area that uh, a talk that I went to had to do with catastrophic claims, and those are defined as claims exceeding $2 million dollars. You know, there was a really good write-up about excessive liability and how to prepare for that in the ASAP News, February 2014, with Dr. Frank and Dr. Sagan. And uh, it's good reading about the pros and cons of what to do for asset protection. Uh, based on the statistical data that's out there, in the United States, in, in uh, 2013, 3.7% of all claims exceeded $2 million dollars. 
and 0.4% uh, of all claims exceeded $10 million in the United States. The, um, that 3.7% was 3.2% in 2012, and that was felt to be a significant increase in these catastrophic claims. When you look at the OB, of course, makes up the majority of these because these kids have lifelong care issues that drive the, the, the value of the claim way up. 7% of all OB claims exceed $2 million. Um, one third of all claims that exceed $2 million are OB claims. And then 56% of all claims exceeding $5 million are OBGYN claims. So they make up a big part of it. When you look at the different venues around the United States, where the percent of successful claims exceed $2 million, Washington, D.C., 8.9% of all claims exceed $2 million. Philadelphia is 8.8%. .8 and the, the national average is 3.7, as I pointed out. California is 3.6%. So one of the questions that comes up related to this is, how much insurance coverage should I have? You know, most hospitals require physicians to have a $1 million, $3 million policy. So you have $1 million for, for any individual claim with an aggregate amount of money coverage of $3 million in any year. Let me just tell you that I, I hear this complaint all the time about asset protection, and I talk with my guys about it. If you want to talk about real numbers around the country, as I meet with other people who do lots of cases, and I've done over 2,400 malpractice cases, I've got two people who exceeded their limits of coverage, one person who actually had to pay it. So you're much more likely statistically, you're 50% likely to lose half your assets to your wife in divorce. That's a much bigger risk to you personally, financially, than this kind of stuff. There are simple things which smart guys will tell you to do every time. You fund up your pension plans. You fund up your kids' education. You, there's all kinds of things which are protected uh, if they come back after you in bankruptcy. In the state of Florida, they can't take a doctor's main residence, even if it's worth like $100 million. So there's lots of ways of doing this, but I think this is overblown. And if you read Mike Frank's piece in the ASAP uh, journal, he basically said that. He said, this is overblown. You're much likely to lose your money other ways than that. And, uh, and, and we should sort of move on from this. Well, yeah, you know, but, I agree with you 100%. Uh, Mike, Go ahead. Mike says uh, here in his notes, uh, only buy excess layers of insurance if you have large liquid assets. Um, and although that may not apply to all emergency physicians, uh, you know, people like you, Greg, I mean, you would basically might need some uh, uh, excess coverage there because they're going to just suck your bank account out because you have these uh, extraordinary assets that uh, uh, most of us don't have. Right, yeah. and they gave an example of an anesthesiologist that, that had a 1-3 policy, but he inherited a large amount of money, you know, somewhere in the range of $20 million, and he had a claim, and, you know, the the life care plan came up with $7 million for this case, and the plaintiff's attorney refused to accept policy limits, so in other words, a million dollars in the case. There are people that are experts at, at asset evaluation, so just keep that in mind if you have a lot of money then you might want to think about excessive coverage. But for the average guy that's out there and 99% of all emergency physicians, your 1-3 policy is probably plenty. All right, guys. Um, I, I want to do a little piece now that I've been thinking about for the last several years, and that is I continuously get phone calls. I meet with people about their cases, 
and they don't know what to really ask their attorneys about who are defending them. So I want to give you 10 things. If you're the named doctor, if you're the defendant physician, 10 things to tell your counsel to do at the plaintiff's expert's deposition. This is the emergency doc who's appearing against you. Now, this may be a great guy and you may have screwed up, but let's just assume that you don't feel that way about it. What should you at least do? So here's the list and you guys jump in as you need to, to give assistance here. Insist that you attend the, the expert's deposition against you. I don't care if you go to the family's dep. I don't care if you go to this one or that one's dep. I want you to be at the expert's dep because I want him to, he, the doctor, to look across the table at you. Sit there. Don't smile. Don't even be, you don't even have to be civil, but what you have to do is be a presence that he knows he's talking about another doc. Number two. The, you know, the thing, the only thing I would add to that, Greg, is yeah. that when you're the defendant physician, bring a little portfolio with a notepad in it and take notes during the deposition because it's very distracting for the expert because when he says something and then it's written down, they're trying to figure out if they did something wrong and that their train of thought is thrown off. I, I couldn't agree more. And it doesn't matter what you're writing. Right. It doesn't make any difference. It could be your grocery list, you know? Yeah, um, and, exactly. it sh and, and it should be. I mean, well, after know, all. We uh, talked to Bruce Fagel last month about that. And we specifically asked him, uh, should we show up? And it, he had a, sl a slightly different view of it. But it, it seemed illogical that you would not want to hear what is being said against you so that you could at least counsel your attorney that this is um, this this. You, you need somebody on your behalf like you to uh, be there to basically kind of critique what they're saying, what is reasonable, what is unreasonable, what's absurd kind of thing. Rick, How does he necessarily know? Bruce Fagel is a plaintiff's attorney. No, he doesn't want you there because that's not in his favor. It's in our favor as doctors. Okay, here's number two. If they're a member of ASEP, have them sign the ASEP expert witness uh, form. It's called a reaffirmation statement. You have your plaint, you have your attorney read each item, have them agree or disagree, and have them sign it at the end. And if they refuse to sign it, then they get told this will be the first issue uh, when you go to the stand at trial. Why aren't you willing to agree? with those things which your professional society says you should follow in evaluating cases. Absolute home run. I think that's one of the best things ASAP ever came up with. Yep. Well, you Number know, you think, you think it's better than their TPA policy? <laughs> oh, 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 now there's going to be a fight. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Number three, ask about their practice. Who's their chief of their department? Who's the hospital's chief of staff? Who's their hospital administrator? What do they actually do for a living? Because you get all kinds of people who once worked in emergency departments or haven't seen a patient in 10 years 
who haven't done this and that and another thing. The other thing is when you actually make them state the name of their chief and their chief of staff, and they know that they're going to get copies of the DEP, it tends to put a chill right down their spine. Uh, Because, you know, they believe that they can go to some other venue, say anything they want, and then skulk back home. I, I don't agree with that. I think they ought to be tortured along every step along the way. Number four, who is, when you think about this, ask them who is the president of their state ASAP chapter. There is no trouble, there should be no trouble, with you invoking the name of people who are at his or her state chapter leadership and who are going to know about the activity going on. If what they have to say is the truth, they should have no fear. You know, if but you shouldn't give testimony that you wouldn't give sitting there with uh, uh, right wing members of the of, of ASAP who all had loaded deer rifles. And Greg, if you're going to do that, you got trouble. Are you suggesting that um, copies of this uh, deposition be sent to uh, the head of your ER? Uh, the chief of staff at your hospital, the president of your state ASAP chapter? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You've got to remember that deposition testimony is public record. Let me repeat that. Public record. If I had the money, I could get it printed in USA Today. If I bought the advertising space, I could print your damn dep because a court deposition is sworn public testimony, and there's no preventing that from getting out. I think, I think we're just not good enough at using this type of, of technique to make sure that the statements made are, are cautious uh, and, and truthful. You it's mean useful. using this form of intimidation? Hey, here in <laughs> Detroit, we don't call it intimidation. You know, Ricky, what we say is you get more in Detroit with a smile and a gun than you do with just a smile. Okay? It's 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 simple. And you're from Philadelphia. You must understand this is how business goes on. All right. What is the the next question you want your counsel to get involved in is what is the uh, incidence of the disease in the population? Ask him that question because I've been to half a dozen uh, cases where the, emer- the the plaintiff's physician had to look up the disease. It was so rare. A B81021 clotting deficiency. I don't think I've ever seen one in my life, or at least I've never recognized it. And at a certain point in time, we really don't work up everybody for every disease. Where I see this the most is in things like uh, vertebral dissections. If you're honest, even experienced guys who are interesting in neuro have main see, may have seen a couple in their entire career. I always love it when some plaintiff's uh, uh, expert says, well, I've seen probably two dozen. There is no way, statistically, they've seen two dozen of these things. It did not happen, never happened, never will happen. So I want them to commit to bullshit crap right up front. Six. Make them define standard of care. What do they think should be done? And 
what are the things that reasonable physicians might also do that would meet the standard of care? For example, right now, if you look at the results of the TPA survey done in Emergency Physicians Monthly, we're not giving a plug here, Rick. You understand that. We're not doing a plug. But that survey said the vast majority of emergency docs, they're probably not giving out TPA at this moment in time. So at least ask, what are people of good intent, reasonable intelligence, what are the multiple things they might do under certain situations? Greg, Um, I did see that survey, and it did take a big prominent piece of the front page, I think, of that issue of EP Monthly. I think it was whether people supported the policy, but the problem with that survey is there were 189 responses. And so I, I, I think it's very, and in fact, I wrote back to Logan, who's the publisher, that, uh, and the number was there, but it's kind of like that publication is sent out to 30,000 physicians. So when you look at 189, it's hard to say that that represents much of anything from a statistical point of view. Yeah, that's for the plaintiff to point out, Rick, not for us <laughs> to point out. Okay, it's seven. Make them define what rapid and immediate really means with regard to full and busy emergency departments. For example, uh, I saw a recent case, and they said, well, it should have had an immediate evaluation. This is a person who was walking, talking, and had a headache. They waited an hour and 42 minutes from coming to the desk to being evaluated by the doctor. Is that unreasonable in America in a busy emergency department. If I went to USC, your old place, Rick, tonight, do you think I might wait an hour and 45 minutes to be seen? Well, if you have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you probably wouldn't. And so I think that's kind of where this gets muddled. Is this a migraine? Is this who knows? And there you get into this issue of of triage and just how reliable triage is. But I think if I had a subarachnoid hemorrhage and waited an hour and 45 minutes to be seen, I thought I would think that's a problem. Um, but that's looking at it it in hindsight. Of course. And that's the problem. If we went around America and pulled every headache chart, I want to, I want to know what are the driving factors that moves them ahead of the chest pain chart or ahead of the, uh, vomiting child chart. Who's confused all those sorts of things. What never happens is uh, nobody ever talks about what actually happens in busy departments. And to say immediate or they need a rapid evaluation, I don't think most people take the time to define what that is. Next, would the outcome have been different if there had been therapy done immediately? And you can't believe how experts run away from this question. They say, well, they should have done this. Well, the next question, obviously, if you're talking about malpractice, which is duty, breach, harm done, and the the magic word, words proximate cause, was the outcome actually changed or was it different? Because if you actually look at 90, 95% of people who show up with strokes, it probably didn't matter what you did in those minutes. And I think we need some candor and honesty about do we change outcomes it's like when they come in with cpr already in progress statistically what are the chances that person's going to go home with neurologic function 
Rick. I mean, we must we we must have talked about this a million times. Well, if it's in Los Angeles, it's three percent that uh, you're going to walk out, and if you're it's in Seattle, it's probably eighty percent. No, it's about eleven or twelve percent. So yes, the the odds are not good that all, you're going to be playing honesty, the piano. The Seattle numbers are. If you if they find you and they hit you with electricity and and you get a pulse back, maybe it's twelve percent. But uh, if they just find you laying there, that's it's dead. real. Yeah, that's called dead. It's it's not a good thing. And uh, if two hits of electricity don't give you some response, you are a dead person. And then there's a grand finale be, here coming up. Yeah, there really is, and that is lawyers are reasonable people. A lot of them very well-paid, reasonable people, but they have no concept of science or what the logical question line would be on a medical issue. If it's your lawyer, you should sit and listen to what the question line will be for the expert on the disease, because quite frankly, they don't know what to, uh, to ask in certain kinds of cases. And you need to define... You need to extract from the plaintiff's experts what are they actually going to say at the time of trial. But isn't uh, that kind of the job of, their, uh, of your expert to kind of basically help in this regard to plot the strategy that will be the attack? It's not their solely their responsibility, uh, and certainly you'd like to have your two cents in this, but ultimately your lawyer, I think, is going to say, we think that this is the best way to get the results we want. Let me give you an example, and this happened to me personally in a suit that I was named in that I got dropped. When I was at the deposition of the expert, he was commenting on the nurse's notes on an electronic chart, the mean arterial pressure. And so during the break, I asked my attorney, I said, let's ask him to calculate the mean arterial pressure for a blood pressure of 160 over 90. And the guy couldn't do it. Okay, so he beat him to death. So you're commenting on the mean arterial pressure and you don't even know what it means. And there were a lot of other factors that got me dropped from the case. But having a physician there would pick that up. An attorney's mm -hmm. not going to get that. And the last thing is do the research as needed. If it's your butt on the line, listen to what the, your defense expert has had to say. What are the studies they're referring to? What's going on? And if you have more current data, make sure that your attorney has it. I mean, one of the reasons that uh, we sit and we look at the data is it changes. And you find all the time that there are people bringing in data which has been surpassed. It's now passe information. And remember, nobody's been assigned to take care of you except you. And you can't get to the end of the trial and say, oh, there was inadequate representation. You know what? The judge doesn't care. He figures you've had enough impetus here to look at what's going on and to help take care of yourself. So in any event, those are my 10 tips. If you get sued and what to do before the plaintiff's expert step. Let me thank Mike. I know, Mike, you've got to run. You've got a meeting in uh, 15 minutes. And I appreciate you very much you're taking the time and summarizing this uh, data from the ASHRAM meeting uh, and giving your uh, perspective on it. it. I think it's very helpful. And um, Gregory, you want to do a quick wine of the month here, Chief, because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, Mike, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I'd be happy to come back anytime, and I love your show. You're thank terrific. You. Listen, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to go now, again, remembering Mel's uh, dictum 
Uh, if it ain't cheap, I ain't opening it. Uh, and tell you that there's been a sort of a new publication of sort of wine uh, values around the world. Uh, California has a lot of them, by the way. But just to throw out a few that you ought to think about. First one is from a, a vintner, Neil Ellis, and his Sauvignon Blanc Sincerely. 2013 Sauvignon Blanc Sincerely. They're a Western Cape uh, South African wine. The South Africans have come on like gangbusters. They've come on just like Australia has. And this is a white which carries a fantastic rating, 90 bucks. And what are they getting? 13 bucks a bottle for it. I mean, this is, this is as far as I'm concerned, good. Now, what would I compare it to? Uh, we, we have had La Crema talked about on this show probably 10 times. It's Ricky's wife's favorite wine. Costco. And, Costco. And Costco, by the way, was now the largest wine distributor in America. Uh, uh, but, but I think that this Sauvignon Blanc Sincerely, I had the opportunity to taste this. This is terrific stuff. And, and you know, at, at 13 bucks a bottle, how wrong can you go? Ricky, gotcha. there you go. All right, listen, that's, uh, we still, Gregory, will be getting to your cases one of these days. One yeah, of these thanks. days. Thanks. Well, we, and we do have a, a couple more letters, so that's something to look forward to uh, next month. So uh, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Gregory, uh, enjoy your week in Hawaii. I'll do that, Rick. Bye-bye. Aloha. Take care.